When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jess, and I'm still alive. <laughs> now, you might have noticed that we've been off for a couple of weeks. Not ideal, I know, but unavoidable in this case. I uh, will not bore you with the details, but I will say that clinical burnout is real, and if you let it go too long, well, it can manifest into other health problems that you absolutely do not want. Look after yourself and get some sleep, or you could end up in the hospital, like I did. Take a day off, take three days off, and don't forget to take your vitamins. Trust me, okay? Anyway, I'm on medical leave from my job now for a while, but I'm not dead, and I'm going to be fine. Eventually. So that's something. So given the absolute nightmare that this month has been, I thought it would be fun to spend a little bit of time on a lighter topic this week before we return with a deep dive into some darker territory in the coming episodes. Today, I'm going to walk you through my top 10 surprisingly modern fashion and beauty trends of the Victorian period. Now, don't worry, guys. This one's kind of fun, and it's kind of gross. So, well, I hope you enjoy it. <laughs> Looking through Victorian portraits, you'd be forgiven for thinking that all anyone ever wore was black. Mourning had its own trends and traditions, but what about the rest of the time? Surely people didn't wear black every day. Well, black wasn't even common for menswear before Beau Brummel set the trend that was to last through the next 200 years and counting. Famous for his hours-long morning routine, as well as his preference for polishing his boots with champagne, Brummel's true legacy surrounds us every day. Prior to his championing simple and elegant menswear in dark colors, many men of fashion dressed as ostentatiously as women, if not more so, wearing bright colors, makeup, wigs, and high heels. Brummel's influence changed all of that and set the tone for fashion for the rest of the 19th century, and all clothing became more conservative, serviceable, and monochrome, didn't it? Well, not exactly. In today's episode, we're going to talk about some surprising fashion and beauty trends of the 19th century, the kind of thing that people think of as too modern or anachronistic. The idea is to prove that, even in Britain and America, this period was far more colorful than surviving tintypes would lead you to believe. So, with fashion history, first of all, there are two major things that lead to serious misunderstandings. Portraits and something called survival bias. Photography was still relatively rare in the 19th century, and it was mainly used for special occasions. If you only had one chance to preserve your likeness, you would probably want to present yourself in the best and most universal way possible. Serious, capable, well-dressed, what people wore in pictures wasn't necessarily what they liked to wear every day, however. Think about the difference between LinkedIn and the early days of MySpace, minus Crazy Town automatically playing over your profile picture. Man, I just dated myself hard. 
Anyway, survival bias is a term used to describe the skewed view that we get by assuming pieces that have survived to the present are representative of the common sizes and styles of the period they came from. But the opposite is actually true. Unless they were preserved for some reason, most pieces that survived did so because they were too small for anyone to use. Before fast fashion, clothing was incredibly expensive, and it was usually patched until it fell apart, or deconstructed and refitted as a hand-me-down for somebody else. Finer fabrics and useful shoes would have been worn until they basically disintegrated, while clothing and shoes too small to wear might have been kept just in case someone else needed them. Very few people could fit into a dress with a 20-inch waist. It's worth noting that there are far fewer surviving examples closer to the 30-inch mark, which is probably where most women would have been. Likewise, stranger trends or things that would have fallen out of fashion more quickly may be harder to find because they were rarer to begin with, not to mention less likely to be passed down. You'll see what I mean here in a couple minutes. So with all that out of the way, today we're going to be looking at a few fashion and beauty trends that feel like they should be too modern for the 19th century. Every generation wants to think that they've invented the wheel, but inspiration doesn't often come from nowhere. People today are inspired by the Victorians as often as the Georgians were inspired by the Romans. High fashion borrows from punks like Joan Jett, and Joan Jett wore fetish gear like Teresa Berkeley. It's history, and it's very hot right now. <laughs> In no particular order, here are a few of my favorite, surprisingly modern fashion trends of the 19th century. Number one, unnaturally colored hair. Wig powder in colors like pastel pink, purple, and blue had been popular throughout the 18th century, but bright colors didn't entirely leave when wigs started to go out of fashion. In the beginning of the century, Henry Cope became known as the Green Man of Brighton because he powdered his hair bright green. No one could doubt his devotion to his favorite color. His clothes, apartment, and even his pet poodle were also green, and he was never seen eating anything other than green fruit and vegetables. That's commitment. You gotta respect it. Number two, hot pink. In 1860, two new aniline dyes were developed for clothing, magenta and solferino, a nice kind of pinkish purple a bit like fuchsia. Magenta was so popular that it was referred to as the queen of colors, and it was used to dye dresses, underwear, petticoats, ribbons, bonnets, and even stockings. That's right, the most popular color of the 1860s was neon pink. Black and white photography somehow doesn't do it justice. Number three, pants for women. Harem pants, to be specific. You know, like MC Hammer's hammer pants, but like more so. <laughs> Tell me you were born in the 80s without telling me you were born in the 80s. Anyway, harem pants is a term for loose, lightweight trousers gathered at the ankles, and they were called that because they were an imitation of certain types of traditional trousers from places like Turkey, South Asia, Bosnia, and Ukraine. And people in the West, well, they gotta make it weird. Anyway, these pants can be particularly voluminous, so much so that some styles can look a bit like a skirt from a distance. So, in 1851, Mrs. Amelia Jenks Bloomer from New York, yes, her last name was actually Bloomer, tried to start a new trend for Turkish-style trousers, with her friends in London trying to make them catch on there. It worked for a little while. A London brewery even temporarily changed the uniform of their barmaids from dresses to blouses with harem pants. But Amelia Bloomer, well, she was a bit ahead of her time. 
Harem pants wouldn't take off as a trend until 1911, when designer Paul Poiret reintroduced them in Paris as a statement on women's liberation. Number four, brightly colored and visible underwear. Around the mid-19th century, elaborate undergarments became a necessity for giving those enormous skirts their fashionable bell shape. Along with crinolines to hold the skirts up, women could wear corsets, petticoats, chemises, or chemisettes, and sometimes even knickers, or like what we would think of as underwear. Underwear could be detailed as the dresses that covered it, and it was actually designed to be seen, even if only in private. To keep it interesting, all of these pieces were often dyed bright colors, especially hot pink, tartan, and brilliant red. People still wore stockings, but they didn't only come in black and white. You could find them in just about any color or print, and some were embroidered or embellished in other ways. With all that expense and attention, it's kind of a shame that no one would see it but your maids and your spouse, isn't it? As you could imagine, the more elaborate petticoats got, the more people wanted to show them off. Increasingly, dresses were designed to show off what was beneath, and some were rigged up with rings and ribbons under the skirts to allow you to show off as much or as little as you wanted. Think about window blinds. It's the same concept. And it sounds handy, too. You could raise or lower the skirt for a completely different look depending on who you were seeing that day. Convenient. And speaking of daring, that takes us to number five, fetish gear. Guys, the 1870s were wild. Around this time, there was a trend for women to wear a scarf tied around their knees or very low around the hips and across the pelvis. These scarves were called fig leaves, and they were worn to attract men with the suggestion that the woman was tied up at his mercy. Around the same time, dog collars, chokers, and chains were some of the most popular jewelry trends. Once again, problematic friend of the pod, Hannah Colick, used to wear a chain padlocked around her neck to show her devotion to her secret husband, Arthur Munby, who was the only one who had the key. Bats, crucifixes, and insects were common motifs for accessories throughout the 1870s, and daggers that opened into fans were a must-have. Although it's difficult to find written references to fishnet or fishnet clothing prior to about 1900, we do have an actual photo of Johanna von Klinkosch wearing fishnet sleeves in the 1870s. She looks a bit like a Victorian Susie Cave, aka the vampire's wife, which is to say, very fashion forward and incredibly hot. We'll definitely put that up on our Instagram so you can see that for yourself. Number six, showers. Okay, not the most exciting item on this list, but it is worth mentioning. Showers existed, and although they weren't anywhere as near as common as they are today, when people had them, they were better than ours, honestly. Victorian showers had multiple jets positioned all around the body for a more immersive experience and a faster clean. They also had pre-packaged sheet masks for the face and glove masks for the hands, just like we do now. And from 1880, they even had perforated toilet paper, courtesy of the British Perforated Paper Company. Try saying that five times fast. Which leads us to number seven, straight white teeth. These days, a lot of people get braces to straighten their teeth, but archeologists have found evidence of orthodontic practices going all the way back to the ancient world. During the 19th century, orthodontia became its own practice distinct from dentistry, and several important advancements were made, particularly with regards to the treatment of cleft palates. Orthodontists experimented with the use of bands and wires to create tension and sometimes remove teeth to prevent crowding as well. 
Now, this seems exceptional given toothpaste didn't yet exist in its modern form, but several tooth powders were available, however, usually a scented or flavored abrasive substance that would have a similar effect. And if you weren't able to get a hold of a commercial tooth powder, you could always make your own. Recipe books suggested everything from baking powder to ground eggshells to gunpowder. Yeah, gunpowder. It sounds strange, but it worked. As early as the 18th century, gunpowder was recognized as an effective treatment for toothache. It did work, and it still does. Potassium nitrate, one of the main ingredients in gunpowder, is still a common ingredient in sensitive toothpaste today. And as for whitening, do you really want to know? <laughs> Straight ammonia was recommended, and if you couldn't find that, well, there was always urine. You think I'm joking, but urine has been used to whiten laundry and, yes, even teeth since at least ancient Rome. Guys, if you don't mind, I think I'm going to stick with the Colgate. Number eight, fake eyelashes and eyebrows. Okay, guys, this one's a little nuts. By the 19th century, fake eyebrows had been around for a very long time. Not only could you pencil them in or tattoo them on, yes, really, we'll get there in a couple of minutes, you could also wear fake ones attached with glue or spirit gum. Easy peasy if a little gross and, well, not exactly PETA approved. From the 17th century on, many fake eyebrows were actually made out of mouse skin. Ugh. But possibly still preferable to fake eyelashes. People had been using eyeliner and eyeshadow creams and powders since the Egyptians, but the love for long eyelashes didn't start with Max Factor back in the 1920s. As far back as ancient Rome, Pliny the Elder wrote that long eyelashes were a sign of chastity, as lashes could fall out with sexual excess. You know, I don't know about that, dude. <laughs> anyway, centuries after people shrugged off that particular piece of wisdom, people continued to darken their eyelashes with various concoctions, and some even went as far as attempting to dye them with walnut juice or other more caustic substances. But as for actually lengthening them, well, that seems to have taken off in the late 19th century. According to the Ugly Girl Papers, one of our favorite sources, a beauty guide from Gilded Age New York, the best way to naturally grow eyelashes longer is as follows. The eyelashes may be improved by delicately cutting off their forked and gossamer points and anointing with a salve of two drams of ointment of nitric oxide of mercury and one dram of lard. Mix the lard and ointment well and anoint the edges of the eyelids night and morning, washing after each time with warm milk and water. That's right. If your eyelashes aren't long enough, she says that you should cut them really blunt and then rub mercury into your eyes. Just to be absolutely clear, that was a terrible idea. Please don't do that. Obviously, it didn't work, and if you didn't want to rub mercury directly into your eyeballs, there were always fake eyelashes. Wig makers made the first fake eyelashes, which could be attached with spirit gum for the stage or daily use, but the earliest experiments with eyelash extensions are not for the faint of heart. As early as 1882, there are reports that certain specialist salons in Paris and throughout the UK were offering permanent eyelash extensions by literally sewing lengths of delicate hair into the eyelids with a tiny needle then trimming the hair to the desired length. In London, the process apparently took three days, cost 12 guineas, which is a huge amount of money, and was supposedly 
painless. So, okay, look, my bullshit detector went off when I read that, but it does seem to be true. In 1882, the New York medical record actually reported the same thing. It says, The Parisians have found out how to make fake eyelashes. I do not speak of the vulgar and well-known trick of darkening the rim around the eyes with all kinds of dirty compositions or the more artistic plan of doing so inside the lid. No, they actually draw a fine needle threaded with dark hair through the skin of the eyelid, forming long loops, and after the process is over, I am told it is a painless one, a splendid dark fringe veils the coquette's eyes. Now, the medical record wasn't the only journal writing about this process. Other papers throughout the UK covered this as a trend as it developed over the next decade. It might not surprise you to hear, however, that most people preferred the kind of eyelashes that you just glue on. Although they were sold throughout the end of the 19th century, they weren't officially patented until 1911, just in time for the resurgence of harem pants. Number nine, tattoos. Tattoos have been around for a very long time. The earliest evidence of tattoos has been found on mummies from the 34th century BCE, predating written history in Mesopotamia by some 300 years. There is so much to the history of tattoos, in fact, that we're going to have to dedicate a whole episode to it in the future. But for the sake of this week's topic, we're going to focus on Britain and the trends that led to the invention of the tattoo machine in the 1890s. This invention did not come out of nowhere. It was actually a response to demand. Tattoos were not unknown to the British, to say the least. In fact, the word Britain actually comes from the island's ancient love of body art. When the Romans invaded in the first century BCE, they found the inhabitants covered in blue markings. They called them the Praetani, the painted ones. The word Praetani evolved a bit over the years, and the land of the painted ones eventually became known as Britain. Now, we know that woad painting was a thing, but many of these designs were actually permanent. In the third century, Gaius Julius Solinus wrote, that region is partly held by barbarians who, from childhood, have different pictures of animals skillfully implanted on their bodies, so that as a man grows, so grow the marks painted on him. There is nothing more that they consider as a test of patience than to have their limbs soak up the maximum amount of dye through these permanent scars. The practice of tattooing didn't end there, however. In the 12th century, William of Malmesbury noted in his chronicles that the British were fond of tattoos and that this is one of the first local practices adopted by the Normans after the Norman invasion in 1066. During the Middle Ages, tattoos became a permanent souvenir of religious pilgrimages, particularly to the Holy Land. In fact, Rizuk Inc. in Jerusalem still offers the same historical designs that religious pilgrims have been getting there for more than 700 years. Early contact with Native American and other indigenous people in the 16th century and beyond inspired a new appreciation of tattoos, which continued to grow in popularity throughout the 17th and 18th centuries. Their association with convicts may be due in part to the fact that a lot of the documentation of tattoos we have from this time only survives because it was noted in court cases, which sometimes relied on identifiable tattoos to make convictions. Tattoos were more common than you'd think, particularly among sailors and soldiers who tended to use them for identification, but it was in the 19th century that they really took off as a popular trend for everyone. From the late 1860s, it was the fashion for aristocrats traveling to Japan to come back with beautiful tattoos. 
It was a status symbol. Not only could you afford the tattoo itself, but also that trip to Japan. The future King George V got one in 1881 at only 16, a blue and red dragon done by an artist in Yokohama. But you didn't have to go so far to get one. In the 1870s, a high-profile court case was actually decided by tattoos, or the lack thereof. In 1854, a man named Roger Tichborne, the heir to the Tichborne baronetcy, he went missing at sea. Fourteen years later, a man appeared claiming to be him, just in time to inherit his title and fortune. Tichborne's siblings knew he wasn't their brother, and they took the man to court to prove it, where it was revealed that the real Roger Tichborne had several tattoos, and they'd all been done by his friends in boarding school. This man claiming to be him had none, and he was sentenced to 14 years in prison. Tattoos remained popular among the aristocracy and beyond. The Prince of Wales and his son, Albert Victor, both had them. Aristocratic men and women got them, and this set the trend for everybody else. Permanent makeup even caught on, with some people getting their eyebrows and lip rouge tattooed on, presumably to avoid the uh, whole mouse skin thing. The first electric tattoo machine seems to have been invented in 1890, but it wasn't patented until 1891 in New York, where the who's who of the Gilded Age got them as well, including, notably, young Jenny Jerome, better known as Lady Randy, or Lady Randolph Churchill, the mother of Sir Winston Churchill. You may have heard of him. In 1894, it was reported that she got an Ouroboros tattoo around her left wrist, and this has been confirmed by a number of other sources. Curiously, her portraits tend to show that particular wrist covered. I can't imagine why. And speaking of Gilded Age New York, that takes us finally to number 10. Nipple piercings. Yes, nipple piercings. I promise there's a link. In the late 1890s, there was a trend for women, well, usually wealthy women because of the cost of the jewelry, to get nipple piercings. Many had to travel to Paris to do it, but one Bond Street jeweler reported that he had pierced the nipples of no fewer than 40 ladies and young women. They wore rings or studs of gold, with or without jewels, and sometimes they connected the piercings with a chain. One actress at the Gaiety Theater was said to wear a chain of pearls connecting hers with a bow at each end. Guys, I really hope that isn't a Victorian pearl necklace joke, but honestly, I wouldn't put it past them. Ew. Anyway, around this time, an anonymous woman wrote into Society magazine to explain the appeal. Society wasn't exactly a serious magazine, but the letter is fun reading. It does sound a bit like it should start Dear Penthouse. See what you think. For a long time, I could not understand why I should consent to such a painful operation without sufficient reason. I soon, however, came to the conclusion that many ladies are ready to bear the passing pain for the sake of love. I found that the breasts of those who wore rings were incomparably rounder and fuller developed than those who did not. My doubts were now at an end, so I had my nipples pierced. With regard to the experience of wearing these rings, I can only say that they are not in the least uncomfortable or painful. On the contrary, a slight rubbing and slipping of the rings caused in me an extremely titillating feeling, and all my colleagues I have spoken to on this subject have confirmed my opinion. Okay. Well, like tattoos and fake eyelashes, the trend made it to Gilded Age New York. 
They were apparently popular because near the end of the century, a physician actually felt the need to publish a brochure warning young American women off of piercing their nipples as such piercings could encourage unhealthy sexuality. God forbid. Now, this list is by no means exhaustive. This is just the first 10 things that came to mind. Uh, If you look, I'm sure that you can find more of your own. History is full of surprises if you're paying attention. But the next time you hear someone praise a portrait of some dour-looking Victorian lady, just remember, I want you to know, deep down in your heart, that it is entirely possible she's got red underwear and at least one tattoo. So this week's episode is dedicated to one of my very best friends, makeup artist, teacher, and Hollywood hairstylist, Courtney Winterborn. Courtney, I know you said you wanted poisonous makeup, and we'll get there. I promise. I'd also like to give a special shout out to superstar patron Charlotte Collings, who asked for more information on the history of tattoos. Thank you, Charlotte. And thank you as well to our fabulous patrons on Patreon, Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney, Michelle Dunbar, James Finch, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Emma Young, Mary McComb, Janine Meberg, Jessica Miller, and Kelly Simon. You guys make more difference than you know. Of course, my goal is to be able to do this podcast full-time, and listener support in all of its many awesome forms is what will make that possible. If you do want more episodes as well as more bonus content in the future, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory. And this week on Patreon, we have a bonus 15-minute mini-sode about Gilded Age New York, specifically about how crazy expensive some of those parties were. One of them, the Bradley Martin Ball of 1897, was one of the most expensive parties in recorded history. I'm talking about that this week, as well as my appreciation of Morgan Spector's spectacular beard. It's a good look. It really is. So be sure to check that out. You can also rate, review, and subscribe, or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Dirty Sexy History. If you'd like to reach us or more posts from our archives, you can contact us or find all of these through our website at DirtySexyHistory.com. Our sources today include Zoe Alker and Robert Schumacher, How Tattoos Became Fashionable in Victorian England, The Conversation, Leslie Blanche, Editor, Harriet Wilson's Memoirs, Ewan Block, Sexual Life in England, Past and Present. David Cox, The Name for Britain Comes from Our Ancient Love of Tattoos, BBC Future. C. Willett Cunnington, English Women's Clothing in the 19th Century. Moe Kumar, From Gunpowder to Teeth Whitener, The Science Behind Historic Uses of Urine, Smithsonian Magazine. Catherine Foxhall, Gumpowder? A Strange Little Recipe for Sensitive Teeth, Hypotheses. Anna Felicity Friedman, Inside the World's Only Surviving Tattoo Shop for Medieval Pilgrims, Atlas Obscura. Terence McLaughlin, The Gilded Lily, 1972. Lola Montez, The Arts of Beauty, or Secrets of a Lady's Toilette, 1858. Sarah Murden, The Green Man of Brighton, Henry Cope, on All Things Georgian. Pliny the Elder, Natural History. Liza Picard, Victorian London. Sally Pointer, The Artifice of Beauty, S.D. Powers, The Ugly Girl Papers, or Hints for the Toilette, George F. Schrady, M.D., Editor, The Medical Record, A Weekly Journal of Medicine and Surgery, New York, 1882, Liz Stanley, Editor, The Diaries of Hannah Colick, 
Victorian maidservant. See you next time. Dirty Sexy History is an independent podcast by Jessica Kale and Dr. John Jenkins. You can find us at DirtySexyHistory.com.